Well, amen. Good morning, church. Good morning, church. I'm excited to be here. I hope you're excited. If you don't know me, uh, my name's Billy. Good morning, Reagan. And uh, I'm excited to have our kids in here. I'm so thankful for our uh, kids team and Frankie and Laura and Blake and all the, the effort that they put into uh, partnering with you and coming alongside us uh, as parents to help us disciple our children uh, as God has called us to do. And so I'm excited to have them in here this morning. If you've been here, you know uh, we've been walking through a series called The Seven Churches. Uh, the Seven Churches. And uh, we've been walking through uh, the first few chapters of Revelation uh, looking at these seven churches. And what we've seen is uh, we, we've seen God writing letters, Jesus himself writing letters to specific churches uh, correcting them, challenging them, encouraging them, and it's been awesome to look at that. We are uh, kind of in a, a year-long study of truly what the Bible teaches uh, it means to actually be the church. You know, we live in a culture that says we need to come to church, and there's nothing wrong with coming to a gathering at the church, but God wants us to not just come to church, but be the church. And so what does that look like uh, for us to do that. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 3, uh, Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Uh, I'm also excited because we have one of our missionary families here uh, today that you guys are going to get to hear from uh, at the end of the service today. I'm actually going to preach a short sermon, uh, God willing, and they're going to come up and share a little bit after. And so y'all definitely are going to want to hear what they have to say. So uh, let's read uh, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, and remember the angel is not a angelic, don't think like angel in the sky, think uh, messenger, that's what the word means, so it would be the preacher uh, and the, the pastor of the church in Laodicea, and here's what Jesus says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And so God reveals himself with an identity in all seven of these letters to the churches. And usually however he reveals himself has everything to do with what he's about to say to the church. And so uh, to the church of Laodicea, he wants them to know that he's the beginning and the end and that what his words matter, that what he says are really the only, only words and, and, and opinion that matters about the church of Laodicea. So let's hear what he has to say. Verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither, hold, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now that's strong language. I want us to say that together. On the count of three, say spit you out of my mouth. One, two, three. All right, so that's what Jesus wants to do, and that's not a good, uh, good thing. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. This is what they are thinking. God wants to spit him out of his mouth, but listen to how they're thinking about their church. You say that I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But then listen to God. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent because here I am. I stand at the door 
and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What an incredible promise. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I love how he ends every letter with that. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. It's important that we have open ears, and I pray that we do uh, today. And so as you can see, the letter to Laodicea uh, was not good. So what we can assume based on the letter is that Laodicea was pretty much in worse shape than all of the other churches that we've seen thus far. And if you haven't been here over the past few weeks, which I know a lot of us have been traveling, I wanna just bring you a quick reminder of the six churches that came before so that you can understand the magnitude of what he's saying in this. This is definitely the worst review we get of any of the churches. So remember the first church, Ephesus. This was kind of your modern day Bible thumping church, so to speak. Uh, they were doctrinally sound, they were hardworking, and they were moral, uh, but they had lost their first love, Jesus said. And perhaps this was their love for one another, perhaps it was love for lost people in their community, perhaps it was love for God, maybe a combination of all, but Jesus' message to them was very clear. His instruction was love. Love needs to be a distinctive of Christ's church. Secondly, we remember Smyrna, uh, was it was your persecuted church. They were, think of like maybe a church in the 1040 window, which you'll get to hear about uh, in a little while, where it's hard there to be a Christian and hard there to plant churches. They were afflicted, they were slandered, they were impoverished, yet they were spiritually rich. They were vibrant, but they were fearful. They were fearful that something was gonna happen to them. And Jesus' message to them was very clear. He said, be faithful, focus on continuing to be faithful. And then the third church was Pergamum. And it was kind of your immature church, maybe made up of young believers. It was just not very grounded uh, in their faith. They were faithful and passionate to talk about Jesus to others, but they were worldly. Uh, they, they had been influenced by their culture and they were compromising specifically in two areas, sexual immorality and idolatry. And so Jesus' message to them was very clear. It was, do not conform to the world, but be holy, pursue godliness. And then the fourth church was Thyatira, which we remember was the warm-hearted church, the, uh, a little bit more liberal, kind of just you know uh, tolerant, so to speak. Uh, but they were warm-hearted. They were strong in love. They had faith. They were strong in service and perseverance but they undervalued God's word and doctrinal integrity and moral purity. They were loving, but they were just over-tolerant. And Jesus' message to them was be discerning. Understand you have an enemy that's trying to get in and conform you to the world and rob you of your effectiveness. And then fifthly, we see the church in Sardis. This was the church that was flashy. They were successful. They were shallow, but they were a mega church. Uh, they were filled every Sunday, but with mostly nominal Christians and hypocrites. They had a great reputation of being alive to those around them, but in reality, Jesus said they were dead. They were what Jesus would call the church of the whitewashed tomb, which he explained with the Pharisees was, you look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead bones. And so Jesus' message to them was very clear. He said, you need to wake up. Wake up and understand the situation. 
And then the sixth church finally was Philadelphia. And we read last week, they were a small church, a struggling church. They felt weak, they felt unimpressive, but they had kept the word of God and had not denied the name of Christ in a tough, tough situation. They were struggling, but they were a strong church. And Jesus' message to them was clear. Press on, continue to, to press on and be faithful in the midst of difficult circumstances. Which brings us to the church of Laodicea. And it was a ritzy, rich, wealthy, influential church. Materially, they had everything you could ask for. They were known for uh, their, honestly, they were known for their industry. They were a big financial institution. They were also uh, heavy with clothing, a lot of clothing going on there. A lot of uh, medicine was practiced there. They had this form of uh, eye ointment that you could put on that was apparently a, a big deal back in those days. And so they had everything that you could think of, but they were as spiritually poor as they were physically rich. Right? And so, and, and here's the issue the church was filled with self deception, with apathy, and with complacency. And Jesus' message to them was clear. He said, You make me sick. You make me want to puke. The word spit, me out, spit you out of my mouth is the word in the Bible that's used for puke, right? Nobody likes puke. That's just nasty to even think about. I don't even make you think about it. But that's what Jesus is saying. The way you guys are is making me sick. Of all the churches in Revelation, the, this message to, to Laodicea was probably the worst. There was literally, he said nothing good about them. And then on top of that, he tells them uh, that he wants to spit them out of his mouth. And, and here's probably the scariest reality and this is in my opinion, and also the opinion of many other scholars, of all of the seven churches, the American church, Bible Belt, kind of church where Christianity is, is cultural, by description, is the most similar to the church at Laodicea. You think about it, they were wealthy. Well, a lot of churches here in the South are wealthy. If you say, well, Billy, I'm not wealthy. Well, if you make more than $2 a day, you're in the top 10% of the world in wealth. So congratulations, you are wealthy, probably every person uh, in this room. But they were also comfortable. That means that obedience was optional to them, right? So they looked at uh, the, the Bible as more options to consider rather than commands of God to obey. And they were also complacent. There was no real drive in them. They were just kind of like lollygagging around. They weren't serious about the mission of God and serious about their relationship with the Lord. And then on top of all that, they thought that they were healthy, like they were deceived. Like they were like, God, yeah, we're good. We're rich. We got everything going on. We're prosperous. We're wealthy. We have all that we need. And Jesus is like, no, like you are spiritually in a, in a terrible place. And so there's definitely a warning for us in this passage and a few things that we can learn. And I want to, as a church, in the South, in, in the midst of Bible Belt cultural Christianity where it's a, a fad to just be a Christian because grandma was a Christian and everybody's a Christian, so let's go to church. We have to heed this warning this morning. This is actually the passage that God used uh, to, to save my life. And I remember it being preached when I became a Christian. And so I pray this morning that some other people would come to life as well. So buckle up, here we go. Two personal questions and an invitation. The first question is this, are you making Jesus sick? 
Are you making Jesus sick? Listen to it again. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. So what is it about the church of Laodicea that was making Jesus sick, making him want to spit them out of their mouth? Well, he gives us an illustration and this illustration has never come to life as much as it did uh, a month ago when I was in Turkey. We actually got to go visit Laodicea. And when you get to Laodicea, it's a city in the middle of two other cities, so to speak. And so there's a bunch of mountain ranges. Uh, there's a lot of water, a lot of different kinds of water there. And so to, uh, to one side of Laodicea, you have a town called Hierapolis, which is a huge tourist attraction. They, uh, there was all kind of stuff, hang gliding coming off the mountain. And there was these huge pools of water and steam was coming off of them. There was a warm spring there, and when you get in the water there, a lot of people, uh, are, their joints start feeling better. It's kind of like a whirlpool, a huge uh, natural whirlpool that you jump in and people are swimming and they're just kind of relaxing, and when they get out, they feel uh, refreshed. And then on the other side, there's a town called Colossae, which is where the letter of Colossians was written to the church there, and there, there was uh, a, a lot of... Uh, natural springs and and the, the water was super cold and it was good for drinking they were bottling water and all this stuff there and so think about it Laodicea on one side had hot water springs that people used to for medicinal purposes and then on the other hand they had natural glacier water kind of so to speak it, that was coming off the snow caps on the mountain that was good water to drink and then Jesus looks at Laodicea and he says by the time the water gets here it's lukewarm and it's really of no use. It's not like the hot water in Heropolis. It's not like the cold water in Colossae. It's just lukewarm and good for nothing. And he says, when I think about you and your spiritual condition, that's what I think about. You're useless because you're lukewarm. So the question then becomes, well, what does it mean to be lukewarm? Well, lukewarm faith and an unwillingness to be honest uh, is useless to Jesus. So Jesus tells them, you think you're at a good spot, but the accurate assessment of where you are is wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, and lukewarm. So what is lukewarm faith? Well, the passage tells us that they were living their lives as if they needed nothing from God. And I think that's the definition of lukewarmness, is we live our life as if we don't need God. Now, this can look a bunch of different ways, hundreds of different ways, but I wanna share with you uh, from one of my favorite pastors, J.D. Greer. Uh, he gives us eight characteristics of lukewarm faith, and I'm gonna put them on the screen, but I'm gonna go through them fast, so maybe take a picture of them instead of trying to write them down. The first one is this, lukewarm Christians don't really wanna be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. Because God to them is useful, but he's only useful for fire insurance. They don't wanna to go to hell, they don't uh, really care uh, about being with Jesus or worshiping God as their Lord and Savior, they just don't wanna to go to hell. And because of that, as soon as they get saved or get their fire insurance, they just kind of become like, it doesn't matter how I live now, I'm good. I don't have to do anything, which cr creates this complacent half in what the Bible would call lukewarm Christianity. 
Number two, lukewarm Christians are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not do radical things themselves. But get this, they call radical what Jesus expects from all of his followers. Right? So when we read the Bible and we see that in order to follow Jesus, we must lay down our own desires. We must deny ourselves, pick up our cross, be willing to die, and follow Jesus. They think that's radical. I'll just be a comfortable, complacent Christian, maybe come to church every now and then, feel good about that, don't have to feel guilty, and then maybe tithe every now and then, maybe join a small group, maybe uh, just kind of look good for everybody, but it results in half in, half out uh, Christianity, which is what he's calling lukewarm. Number three, lukewarm Christians equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness. But here's the truth, Jesus didn't call us to just sanitize a little bit. He called us to discipleship. If we are his follower, then our life will not be defined only by avoiding sin, but also by entering into following him, and even if we have to suffer to follow him. This is what discipleship is all about. It is a wholehearted commitment to follow Jesus no matter what it costs you. Number four, lukewarm Christians rarely share their faith with their neighbors, coworkers, or their friends. They have no desire to be on mission for God. They don't want other people to come to know the Lord because quite frankly, their relationship with God is just not that good. I mean, they don't want others to go to hell, but at the end of the day, it's not so important in their life that they want to talk about it. There's other things to talk about, right? Football, politics, all these other things that are way more important in their life than Christ. Charles Spurgeon himself said, in the Christian faith, you are either a missionary or you're an imposter. Number five, lukewarm Christians think about life on earth much more often than they think about eternity in heaven. This is a characteristic of lukewarmness, is that we think a lot about our life on earth, and we build this great life on earth, kind of what uh, the, the Laodiceans were doing. They were trying to be prosperous. Worldly success meant way more to them than eternity, and that's what characterizes lukewarmness. Number six, lukewarm Christians love their luxuries and rarely give to the poor in a truly sacrificial way, right? Again, that we love our stuff so much that we don't ever think about leveraging what we have for the sake of others to see Christ in us. Number seven, lukewarm Christians do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so that they never have to. Pastor David Platt says it this way, if you're not in a place where you feel desperate for the Spirit of God, then there's no way that you're on the front lines of the mission of God. When we are on the front lines of the mission of God, we desperately need for God's help to be there with us. And so one of the ways we know that we're not, uh, we're not thriving and we're not moving forward in the Christian life, but we've settled into lukewarmness is we don't really even need the Spirit of God to come through for anything in our life. Number eight, the final one is this. Lukewarm Christians give God their leftovers, not their first and not their best. Jesus is not the first thing on your schedule. He's the last thing on your schedule. 
And that's how we, we just don't prioritize God because he's not that important to us, but we've got the title Christian and we don't have to go to hell, but now we get to go to heaven and then we just continue to live how we want. And this was what the Laodiceans had slipped back into and Jesus said, this type of Christianity makes me sick because it's, you're in enough to call yourself a Christian but you're not in enough for the fruit of Christ to be displayed in your life. So when other people in God's plan are supposed to be able to look at mine and your life and see himself, they see a half-hearted, devoted Christian that confuses them more about Christianity than actually clarifies who Christ is. And God says, man, this makes us useless for our faith. Not that he knows, he knows we're not gonna be perfect, but he wants to see a progressive sanctification in our life. So here's the question we have to ask on the front end of this sermon. Do you have lukewarm faith? Like honestly, when you assess your situation, your spiritual condition, do you have lukewarm faith? Are you one foot in Christianity and one foot out into the world? Are you half-hearted in your surrender to God? Are you just going through the motions? Are you characterized by being comfortable and complacent and just being a cultural Christian because it's acceptable here? And trust me, if this is you, I know where you're at, I've been there. And trust me, it's miserable. And that's the reason you wanna get out of it because it's tiptoeing in the world and tiptoeing with Christ and straddling the fence is the most miserable place you'll ever be in your spiritual life. Not only that, but it makes Jesus sick. Like the implications of thinking about Christ and thinking of him looking at my life and saying, yeah, you, you make me sick. It's just a huge deal. But if this is you, I want you to hear number two. Do you realize that Jesus still loves you? Listen to what he says in verse 18. I counsel you. So he doesn't run from us at our worst, he runs to us with counsel, what's this counsel? To buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent because here I am. I'm standing at the door and knocking. And if anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, then I will come into their life, into their home, and eat with that person, and they will be with me forever. So what was Jesus' counsel to them? He wants them to be honest. And as long as I'm the preacher here to the day that I die, I will always tell you this. The prerequisite to God doing a work in your life is honesty. You have to be willing to take an honest assessment of your spiritual condition. You have to be willing to look at God and allow him to speak into your life and say, Billy, this is where you are. And listen, that's not just to become a believer, that's to continue to grow in the Christian faith. Like we have to maintain this posture of teachability and, and humility and, and just a, a desire for God to do a work in our life. And the word earnest, earnestly repent. Earnest means uh, resulting from or showing sincere and intense conviction. And so God wants us to understand that in the Christian life, conviction is a good thing because it's the pathway to us growing in our relationship with God. Now there's a difference between conviction 
and condemnation, right? When God convicts us, it's for our better so that we can grow. Condemnation is when basically we don't have Christ and we're condemned by God. So in, in Christ, we're never condemned, but in Christ, we can be convicted. We need to understand that's a good thing. But even in the midst of an honest evaluation that's not good, which if you've been a Christian long, this has probably been a characteristic of your Christianity at some point. In this, in the worst news that we see in the book of Revelation, we see the good news of the gospel right behind it. And this is good news, this is huge. This means that when we are at our worst, Jesus still loves us and he doesn't give up on us. And he sees us in our struggles, he sees us in our lukewarmness and he says, I'm knocking. And he wants to come in, he wants to revitalize your relationship with God once again. And because he loves us, the Bible says he disciplines us. So think about the illustration, a loving parent who wants good for their child and he sees them doing something, uh, playing in the road that may lead to them just getting destroyed and he comes in and says, no son, don't do that. That's the picture from a loving God who wants his children uh, to do good and to, to be on the right path. He disciplines us and he corrects us. So the question is, what does God's discipline look like in our lives? This is important for us to understand if we wanna to continue to grow in our life. Well, a couple things. One, I've seen it in my life in this way, through his word. God's word is living and active. God's word as it's being preached is living and active. It's not uh, the spirit of God empowers it to work uh, in our hearts and the word of God corrects us and rebukes us and teaches us and trains us. And so as you're reading the word of God, you should feel at times the discipline of God, the conviction of God setting upon your heart to lead you out of something into your life and lead you into something better through other believers. This is what Connect Group's all about. We all need other Christians that love God in our life that, that love us and wanna see us pursue the Lord wholeheartedly beside us saying, hey, Billy, man, I don't, that area of your life, it seems like you're not glorifying Christ there. Let's, let's talk about it. How are you wrestling through that? How can I help you? And if you've been involved in community, you understand how powerful that is in our life. And we're talking about connect groups the next two weeks. So if you're not in a connect group, definitely an opportunity uh, for God to help you grow in that. We also see... Um, uh, God's discipline through consequences of our sin, right? Sometimes uh, we have to get to the end of sin and see the destruction that it leads to in our life before we're willing to look up because we're so focused on that and thinking it's best that we miss the, the, the elephant in the room that this is about to lead to destruction. Many times God uh, brings us to the end of ourself through the consequences to sin. We see this a lot with drug addiction and other things. A lot of times we have to get to a place where God is all that we have before we realize that God's all that we need. And praise God, he brings us to that place because, and we're not dead by the time we get to it. And so God does this out of grace in our life. Other times, God will discipline us by making us miserable in unrepentant sin, right? Have you ever been there? Like there's this area of your life that just seems to be making you miserable. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no anything, and God's just wooing you back in, and he's showing you, hey, like it, sin is always over promises and always under delivers. So come back to me where you find joy. And I call these wake-up calls. 
And listen, all of our lives, all of our journeys are different. We've all had wake-up calls if you're a Christian, and they come in different forms. One guy was telling me this weekend that his came in the shower where God, bam, saved him in the shower. Other people in this room has come in jail, right? And so other people in this room, it's come through a life event that happened to you that you look at and say, man, I gotta get right with the Lord, and boom. And it's God's grace that brings us to those uh, moments where God can discipline us and correct us. So here's the question. How is God disciplining you in your life right now? And, and, and are you receiving it as a good thing from a loving father that wants good for you? Because don't miss it. It's an invitation to God's better life for you is what it is. If you wanna read more about this, Hebrews chapter 12, verses four through 13 is an incredible passage about the discipline of God. I don't have time to read it, but I'll just say don't miss out on it because it's an invitation to be healed by God when God gives us these wake-up calls and disciplines his children. And then thirdly, I want you to see the greatest invitation is life with Jesus. Did you see it in verse 20? Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I, Jesus, will come in and eat with that person, stay a while, be in that person's life, friendship, discipleship, and they will be with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we see Jesus's invitation is two questions. Are you lukewarm? Do you understand what God's trying to do in your life through discipline? Do you realize that he loves you? And then three, his invitation from the discipline is life with him. It's fellowship, it's rekindled fellowship. And we must understand that he's not writing to lost people here. Like this is a church. And so if God calls it a church, that means at one time they were with God. But now God's saying, He's outside of the church, and they're doing their thing. Man, they're prosperous, they're materially wealthy, they're paying their bills, everybody's giving, everybody's rich, and they're just doing their service and all this stuff. And Jesus is like, I'm not even a part of this. And the sad reality is they didn't even know it. And I heard a quote this week that literally 90% of churches, if you pulled the Holy Spirit out of them, would continue to operate the same way that they operate now. And that's a sad reality. We can never get to the point where we're all in here having fun and moving and doing things and all this stuff and God's nowhere in our presence. Like this is where the Laodiceans were and, and you hear Jesus and he's saying, hey, I'm outside knocking. He didn't run from him, he's knocking, let me in. And his desire is rekindled relationship. Put me back on the throne of your heart because life without me is destruction and life with me is gonna be fulfillment and joy, and peace, and purpose. And we need to understand if we're a believer in this room, God wants to rekindle a relationship with us no matter how bad we think we've gotten and how far we've run from him. If we're a lost person in this room, we need to understand that God wants to save us, not just from hell, but into a relationship with him. He wants to walk with us, to dine with us, to make his home with us so that we can walk with him forever. So today, my prayer is that you would hear his voice, that you would honestly assess your life, and then you would receive his invitation to 
Repent and return back to him so that he can be the Lord of your life because that's what repentance is. It's a great invitation back into God's design. Repentance literally means to turn from your sin, to turn from rebellion against God, to turn from living how you want to live and doing what you wanna do when you wanna do it and turning 180 degrees and saying, God, I don't wanna live for that anymore. I wanna live for you because I believe you are better. And I wanna end today by showing you an illustration that a guy showed me this week that just blew me away. It's the awesome, most awesome picture of the gospel that you'll ever see. And I, I wanna give it to you to prepare you to share with others, but also for you to hear this morning. And it's called the three-circle method of sharing the gospel. And let me, let me show you what it is. And so it, there's gonna be three circles on this board. And one of them, the first one is God's design. And so when we understand the story of Christ and what he's trying to do, it has to start with God's design for our life. It has to start with the fact that every person in this room was created by God and for God. Like that's where we're whole. That's where we're whole, where we're fulfilled. When we're walking in his design, we have to understand that. But we also have to understand that the Bible's clear that sin came into the world through Adam and now we've all inherited that sin and it's caused brokenness all over our lives. And brokenness in every area, our relationships, our marriage, our sexuality, all of these things are now broken because we've taken God's design and kind of conformed to our own design. And we're no longer looking to God, but we're trying to figure it out on our own. And the next thing we see is God's design, sin leads to brokenness, and then through repentance and belief, we can become, we can hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. The gospel is the story of Christ, that Christ came as a man to die on a cross to, to, to basically bring us out of our brokenness and back into God's design, which is the next piece of recovering and pursue because the whole point of the gospel in our lives is to recover God's design for our lives that we couldn't do on our own. And to receive this gospel the steps are clear, repentance, turning from sin, turning to God and saying, God, I wanna live for you, and trusting the Lord is, is, as your Lord and your Savior and trusting that his plan for your life is better than your plan for your life. And then from there, once we believe that, then we spend the rest of our life uh, recovering God's design and pursuing God's design, and then listen to this, it doesn't stop there. Then God uses us as ambassadors of his design and sends us out into a broken world as pictures of his design to the world around us to say, listen, this is what God can do in your life and this is what I want you to understand about God and what he's done for you. It's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us and this is God's heart for the believers at Laodicea is that they would move out of lukewarmness and they would quit just being complacent and comfortable and quit living this one foot in and one foot out life and they would begin to embrace God's design for their life. So would you pray with me? Father, I understand there's a ton of people in this room today and I got, there's people in this room that are in a good place with you. There's people in this room that are in a bad place with you. But God, I pray today that they would see your invitation. Lord, your invitation back into your design, which is to know you and to walk with you and to be uh, live out your purposes on this earth. And God, that you would just, through the power of your spirit, 
God, that they would have ears to hear what you're saying. And Lord, that they would respond. If they're a believer in the room, God, that they would respond through repentance. God, if they're uh, uh, an unbeliever in this room, that today would be the day of salvation. So God, we pray that you would do a work in us that only you can take credit for. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.